welcome to Christ the King on this wonderful, beautiful evening. Would you pray together with me as we enter into God's Word? Lord, we ask as always that your Holy Spirit would go ahead of us, that you would prepare our minds and our hearts to receive your Holy Word. That as we open your scriptures, that we would never just see them as words that lead us to knowledge in terms of knowing information, but you would plant these words deep within our hearts to bear fruit for your kingdom, to shape us more into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. So be with us this evening, we pray. In your name, amen. Well, if you're just joining us, we are walking through the book of Hebrews, and we're moving quite along. We're about halfway through, and this week we're on Hebrews chapter 8, which includes the longest quote in the New Testament of the Old Testament. And it's actually a great time, if you haven't been here for the whole series, it's a great time to be joining along with us in this journey through this book, because the chapter starts with these words in the first verse. Now, the point in what we are saying is this. The point of what we are saying, everything that we've been saying from Hebrews chapter 1 all the way through here to the beginning of Hebrews chapter 8, we're about to hear the author grab our attention and just say, hey, the reason that we're saying all of this, everything has been leading up to this point. And it leads up to this one big idea. What is that? Well, we'll come back to that. We'll come back to that. First, Let me first talk about something that I think will help us frame how we can read, one way that we can read at least, Hebrews chapter 8, why this section here is the main point of everything that the author has been leading up to. And to get that frame, we want to go all the way back to the beginning of the Bible. Now, one of the most profound statements in the entire scriptures, profound in what it means on its own face value, but perhaps even more profound on what it says about human nature is when God says at the beginning, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion. As we've said many times in this series, this is how God created us, that that he created us to be his representative of the world, in the world. And as I said probably 30 times in last week's sermon, our role as we are his representative in the world is to bring his goodness into the world and invite the world into the goodness of God. And one of the ways that you can read through the entire Bible, one of the themes that you can trace from the beginning all the way through the end is this constant tension, this constant struggle between Embracing the idea that we were made in the image of God, and the opposite, people trying to make God into their own image, or at least project onto God their desires of what they want God to be. So we see this right at the beginning, the eating of the forbidden fruit. The temptation ultimately was to be like gods, to be gods unto themselves. This is why the nation of Israel, after being miraculously rescued, after following a pillar of fire, after eating manna that fell out of the sky, decided against all this experience to make a golden calf and start to worship that golden calf because they wanted to make a God into an image that they could create. This is why the prophets mostly are a polemic against turning against idols. In other words, turning against projections of your own desires for fertility or productivity or safety, these projections that they fashioned into images they could worship. This is why the Pharisees had so much trouble with Jesus, as we heard 
Stephen read to us. They had so much trouble with Jesus because they wanted Jesus to conform to the image of Messiah that they had in their own minds, and they were projecting that image onto Jesus. In other words, they wanted Jesus to be made in their own image. I was speaking with a friend earlier this week, and we got into talking about Fowler's stages of faith, as one often does when speaking with a friend. And uh, this, in his Fowler Stages of Faith, is a, is a basically an overview of the way people develop spiritually in their lives. And I thought it made a lot of great points, a lot of great observations. It talks about primal, undifferentiated faith, intuitive, projective faith, mythical, literal faith, etc., etc., etc. Some great explanations. And then the last stage of faith he calls universalizing faith. A stage which, in his words, is rarely achieved by individuals. And he describes the stage as this. A person at this stage is not hemmed in by differences in religious or spiritual beliefs among people across the whole world. Now this, of course, if you can read between the lines, really is just a description of himself. A stage of faith that only few highly enlightened people achieve. We see this all the time in how people try to fashion God into their image. And so you've probably heard of things like John Wayne Jesus. It's a projection of someone's desires onto who Jesus is or a Jesus that looks like a, a postmodern environmentalist. People can often have the same temptation to shape God and to shape Jesus into their own image, to make God into who they want them to be. We all do this and we all have this struggle. Will we embrace this truth that we were made in God's image or we will, attempt, will we attempt to make God into our own image? Now, the reason I talk about all this, the reason I say all of this is that the whole Bible and one of our chief existential tensions is to help us locate the work of Jesus in its proper place. And so to steal the words of this chapter, Hebrews 8, verses one, verse 1, the point in what we are saying is this. The point in what we are saying is this is that Jesus rescues the world. Jesus restores us back into the fullness of life together with God. And Jesus brings us into this ideal of being made fully into his image. And the mark of this restoration and the mark of this relationship is what the Bible calls the new covenant. It's this artifact that points us to being made into the image of Jesus Christ. Better yet, more accurately stated, being remade into who God made us to be. People created in his image. So that's what the author quotes here in, in uh, Hebrews chapter 8. He quotes the new covenant. And so what I'd like to do is we walk through this last summer when we were in Jeremiah 31, but what I'd like to do is walk through it again and point out some things that we didn't get to get to back then and remind us of some of the things that this new covenant says, keeping in mind this main idea that God's goal in sending Jesus and establishing the new covenant is to remake us into the image of Jesus Christ, to remake us into who he created us to be. And so as we look at this, there's three points. For the note takers, there's three points that we're going to look at. Is that as, the new, as we read through this new covenant, it says that we're changed on the inside. It says we're, that we're made a people, plural. And lastly, that in the new covenant, as we're being remade into the image of Jesus Christ, we come to know God in real life, directly and fully. 
So, if you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to Hebrews chapter 8. There are some paper ones in the pews in front of you, or in airplane mode, you can go to your devices. And again, it starts, Hebrews 8 verse 1 starts with this. The point in what we are saying is this. The culmination of everything that we've been leading up to goes to this. Is that this? We have a great high priest, the rest of that verse, one who's seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty of heaven, a minister in the holy places. So the point of all that Hebrews has been leading up to is that Jesus is our great high priest. Only curiously, it doesn't say that he's standing, which is what a priest does. A priest stands because a priest ministers. In fact, if you go back to Acts chapter, I forget the chapter, Stephen, maybe you can remind me, but one of my favorite chapters, the stoning of Stephen, just kidding, we have a deacon Stephen here, but if you go back into Acts, when Stephen looks up into heaven, he sees Jesus standing next to the Father and advocating on his behalf. So that's what a priest does is they stand, and yet here we have in Hebrews 8 verse 1 and 2, it says that the priest is sitting at the right hand of the throne. The priests don't sit. Who sits on the throne, kings. So saying that Jesus is our high priest and he is our king. He is our priest king. And what that means for us is that he secured for us and he brings to us a rescue and a restoration of all things. So that's what he sort of talks about, how a high priest offers sacrifices. And Jesus is there sitting on the right hand of the throne. And then in verse 6 he says, But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old covenant, as the covenant he mediates is better, since he enacted better promises. So what he's saying is that Jesus brings in the new covenant, and the new covenant is about remaking us into this image of who God created us to be. This is what Jesus is doing, sitting at the throne of God, our priest king, advocating but also bringing about the new kingdom and new earth through the means of this new covenant. So let's look at what he says here and three things again that we want to unpack. First thing is this, when he starts talking about the new covenant, he goes down and he has the introductory language and then in verse 10 it says this, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and I will write them on their hearts. So the first thing it says is that God will put his law into our minds and write it onto our hearts. Now again, I don't want to beat a dead horse here, but just in case you think I've been making this all up, again we see here that the spirit of the law embedded in this statement is that the spirit of the law is to make people, both as individuals and as people, walk in a way that brings flourishing into the world. Walk in a way that brings God's goodness into the world and turns the world back to God in proper and right worship to him. That's why it says that he can put the law on our minds and engrave it on our hearts because he's putting this idea of why he created us to bring God's goodness into the world and invite the world into God's goodness. He's placing that in our heart. So for more on that, you can see our messages on Hebrews chapter 2 and Hebrews chapter 7. But when we look at the life of teachings of Jesus, we see this in absolute perfection. It's a life that's lived in perfect truth, perfect holiness, perfect compassion, perfect love for all people. It's a life that's given for the sake of others. This, ultimately, the life of Jesus, is the fulfillment of the spirit of the law. And this is what God puts on our minds and engraves on our hearts. 
Now, in order for us to live this way, we need what many commentators would say, an inner re- renovation of our being. Because we can't do it on our own. And so what God does is he's saying, I'm going to remake you into this new covenant, remake you into who I made you to be originally. And to do that, in part, I'm going to put my law in your minds. And through the Holy Spirit, I'm going to write it deep within your hearts. And we become engraven in this way. We are formed into the image of Jesus Christ. This is the first move of the new covenant, that God's law, his goodness, is written on our minds and engraved on our hearts. Now, in our Anglican tradition, we pray these prayers called collects, which, as we've explained here, are ways in which we pray into theology. So it's good to know points about God and good to know points about the Bible. But one of the things that we like to do is that we embrace these big ideas and we pray into them hoping that the Lord, through the power of His Holy Spirit, would embed them in our hearts and in our minds. And one of the prayers that we pray regularly here is this, O God, because without you we are not able to please you, mercifully grant that your Holy Spirit may in all things direct and rule our hearts through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now what this means, what he's saying is that without you, God, it's impossible to please you. That is, without you, I don't have the ability to walk in the ways that you have set forth in your law, most perfectly exemplified in the life of Jesus Christ. Without you, Lord, I can't do it. I can beat myself in the chest. I can try as hard as I can. I can get in groups and I can get into accountability and those are all good things. I can try as hard as I can, but Lord, without you, without you changing my heart and my mind, Without you engraving this goodness in my heart, I am unable to change myself. It is the Spirit of God that creates that change. Another way to say it is, as one classical commentator wrote, John Calvin, he said this, The Word of God never penetrates into our hearts, for they are iron and stone until they are softened by the Holy Spirit. So what he's saying here in the New Covenant is that God graciously renovates our beings, that he changes us, that he places his goodness on our minds and our hearts. And by doing that, he gives us right love, right desire, right passion, and it gives us lives that are rooted and grounded together in God. Now, we're still involved. God still calls us to respond and walk along together with him, but it's through his power that we change and are renovated. So for us, as we go throughout the week, as you face challenges and circumstances, as you face temptations in your own flesh, as you struggle with ideas of peace and meaning and goodness in your own life, this prayer can be so helpful. Because rather than us trying to produce virtue by ourselves or to, on our own power, resist every single temptation that comes, or when somebody says, how are you doing, to give in to the impulse to say, I'm fine, and manufacture a sense of peace and joy in hard times. This prayer can be helpful because we turn ourselves over to the power and grace of God. Without you, Lord, it's impossible to please you. Without you, Lord, it's impossible to know peace. Without you, Lord, it's impossible to be renovated into the good image that you created me to be. Therefore, Lord, direct and rule our hearts by the power of your Holy Spirit. Now, this is the difference between a philosophy and a religion that focuses on outward behavior modification to make you into a good or better person 
and what Jesus came to bring, which is beyond religion, which is a change from the inside, an inner renovation of our souls, a way that ultimately leads us into eternal life, the engraving of his goodness on our hearts. What God is doing is he's restoring his image within us. And he says this with great joy here as he says, I'm bringing the new covenant. Don't worry about the old. Embrace the new. I will bring it through the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, this is good news to us. So that's the first thing. Second thing that the author does, he says, he continues, I will put my laws on their minds and I will write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Now notice here, it doesn't say, and they shall be my persons. <laughs> it doesn't say, and I will be their God and they shall be my individuated entities following their own paths, living separate lives, differentiated in an island fortress upon the, unto themselves. Came up with that myself. The very nature of the Trinity is present here. Let us make them in our image. Jesus, in his high priestly prayer, which he has a few short prayers in the Gospels, but then he has this long prayer that he prays towards the end of his life. It's called the high priestly prayer. And one of the key points that he makes as he's praying, Jesus, as he's about to leave his disciples, he prays this. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I am in you, that they may also be in us. So again, this is God restoring us to his original image. What does it mean to be made in the image of God? It means to exist in Trinity, in communion, in perfect union with others, in peace, together with others and with God. This is what it means to be restored, to be renovated, to be rescued, is that we are brought into community with God and with others. It's part of the nature of how God created us to be. So this means that there's no such thing as just me and Jesus. <laughs> there's no such thing as, well, I know the right things. I've said the right prayers. Jesus is with me. He's walking with me to guide me. That's all I need in my life. Now, that's good. Don't get me wrong. That's a good thing. But there's no such thing as stopping there where we're just going to do our own thing. Now, just as a pastoral side note, there may be seasons in a desert there may be circumstances in our life that prevent us from deeply engaging in community with others and being known and living in accountability. I'm not talking about that. Those are all seasons that we have walked through, and it's okay to do that. I just would encourage us not to linger there and to accept that as our ultimate reality. As we see here, to be made in the image of God is to be made for communion with Him and communion with other people. To be restored into His image, that's what it means. And so if we embrace just me and Jesus, Jesus is my homeboy and that's all I need, Christianity, we're not living into the image of God. <laughs> we're not embracing the new covenant. We're not embracing all that Jesus came to bring. We're ignoring his prayer that all people would be one as he and the Father and the Holy Spirit are one. And just because it's in my head, we got to share with us at the Priory Leader meeting the other day. When the Father sent the Son, the Son's whole goal was to shine glory on the Father and to bring us to connect with the Father. And when Jesus said, when I leave you, I will send you my Holy Spirit. And what was the first thing he said the Holy Spirit would do? Remind you of everything that I've said. So the Holy Spirit points us at Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit helps us to see the Father and to glorify him. And what's the Father's goal? To set the Son up on the throne 
to glorify the Son. He's saying, have you seen my Son? <laughs> He's so great. So Jesus is pointing to the Father and the Son, and, and the Father saying, look how great my Son is, the Holy Spirit shining a light on both of them. This is the self-giving, self-sacrificing, glorifying nature of the Trinity. This is what it means to be in communion. So when Jesus said, I want them to be one, like me and the Father are one, that's what he's saying. <laughs> this depth of giving and caring and lifting each other up. This is what it means to live into the new covenant. Now, I got a little excited there, but I want to capture this especially for us because this is what it means to be the church. One of the things that we talk about here is we say this tag, deep community. This is what it means. Now, the outside artifacts of what that looks like are we pray for each other and we help each other move and we listen to each other's challenges and we bear with each other's issues and we celebrate with each other when we have great joy with each other. We, we worship and we lift hands and we come to the table together. These are the outward signs of what community looks like. But what we're doing as we walk into the church together is we're living into the image of God that he's created within us. That he is recreating in us through the work of Jesus Christ. That we would be the people of God. That he is our God and we are his people. And the passage goes on to say, from the least to the greatest. That is, that in the kingdom of God, as all people are made one, those with high learning and those with low learning, those who have a long laundry list of sins, those who have said lots of dumb things to their pregnant wives, all sorts, not, not autobiographical. All people are welcome into his kingdom when they turn to Jesus Christ. And so when we confess our sins, we confess as one people. When we come to the table, we come as one people. This is what it means, the least to the greatest. It's not a religion where you have to have seven PhDs and be hyper-enlightened and have lots of time to just sit and ponder the depths of reality in order to finally find salvation. It's open to all people from the least to the greatest. This is the new covenant that we are all invited in to be the people of God. This is what it means to be remade into his image. So that's the second thing. Last point, and I'll just say this very briefly. It's sitting here in the middle of verse 11. So he says, I will write my, put my laws in their minds. I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people from the least to the greatest. And they shall not teach each one to his neighbor and each one to his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. Now, I'll just make this point very short by reading this quote from J.A. Packer. What were we made for? To know God. What aim should we have in life? To know God. What is the eternal life that Jesus gives? To know God. What is the best thing for us in our own lives that will bring us ultimately the most joy? To know God. What in humans gives God the most pleasure? The knowledge of himself. The more we know God, not just know about God, this is why we pray the theology that we would know God, not just know about him, but the more that we know God, the more we will want to know God. For this we were created. When we can join in with a psalmist and say, better is one day, better is 
One minute, Lord, in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. When we can say your presence is all that we need and know, that there's nothing greater in this world that is offered than you. When we can truly embrace what it means to know God, this is what it means to be restored into the image of Jesus Christ. To know him, to know God, and to be defined by him. So as we pray, as we think about this church, as we walk forward together in our faith, we pray this, that the Lord would make the church into the image that he created us to be. Let us never be a church that makes God into our own image. Let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you for your grace and your truth that's always present for us in your scriptures. Lord, we ask that you would continue the work of your Holy Spirit to remake us into your image, that you would direct and rule our hearts in every single way and every day, that we would turn our lives and our hearts over to you, and through this, that we would know you. And Lord, these promises that you make in the scriptures, that knowing you is the end of all being and the greatest joy that we can ever know in life, Lord, make these true in our own lives. Make this true in our own church as we sing, as we come to the table, as we pray. Lord, let us know you. Let this knowledge fill us with great joy and peace. So we pray, Lord, let us be a church that knows you. Send us out from here full of your grace and love. In your great and holy name we pray.